Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back. My name is Steve Jeffrey. I'm one of the pastors here at All Saints Presbyterian Church in Fort Worth. I'm here with Josh Taylor, who is? I am the head of school at Grace Classical Christian Academy in Granbury, Texas. And we have been talking about uh, education, mm -hmm. and we're going to carry on talking about education. Uh, we talked uh, last time about a whole range of different things. We talked about Christian education broadly. Yeah a little bit about our history and uh, your calling, particularly at the moment, moment as a headmaster. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about classical Christian education and some what well, that is and some of its strengths and some of its weaknesses in comparison with other patterns of education. Yeah. Uh, not intending really to give a detailed taxonomy, but more kind of impressionistic big picture. There's The world is so big mm -hmm. and so glorious that um, there's so much that can be done in it. Yeah. And really what we want to be doing, all of us, will have different strengths and weaknesses as parents and as educators. If you're a parent, you're an educator. Mm -hmm. um, and so the question is, okay, you've got to pick one model which sort of fits with your uh, temperament, gifts, situation, capacities as a way of Christianly educating your children. Yeah. And then you want to think, okay, well, what's, how can I do that as well as I possibly can, which will probably involve learning from some of the strengths of people who are doing things differently. So right. we talked about all that stuff. Yeah. And one of the factors that keeps rearing its head in this is, uh, you've used this phrase a few times, certainly off camera, maybe on camera as well, uh, the trade-offs point. Life mm -hmm. is a bunch of trade-offs. Right. Um, you can't do everything. Um, and so I want to get to that. Uh, and you suggested, well, let's, let's get to it via thinking about a Christian doctrine and vocation. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I'm going to suggest is let's start with the vocation point, and then we'll start and think more about uh, the trade-offs, different subjects, different uh, content of education, yeah. education for boys and girls, um, how how and when to narrow down, and when it's still good to be broad and non-specialized. So mm -hmm. talk about education, uh, sorry, vocation. Yeah. Uh, do you want to um, take a stab at what you as an educator think of when you're thinking about a subject? Yeah, I mean, it's it's multifaceted, and uh, I think one component that comes to the top, or at least one component that I've been thinking of most recently is is just driving kind of the, a definition from from a good theology of who God is. And, mm -hmm. and I think I mentioned to you at some point today, um, God is a God of so many jobs, mm -hmm. uh, so many different things, and, and uh, I think if that's our starting point with talking about the doctrine of vocation, I think it'll be a good one. Um, and thinking about how God, you know, that, that principle that God is a God of all these different jobs and how, how everything should, um, should make great the name of Christ. Every job that we do, every job that we're granted to do in, um, in the Imago Dei as we imitate the jobs that, that God does. Right. And, and, uh, you know, thinking about how a plumber or how a janitor or how anyone at any given time can honor God and build the kingdom of God and, and extend that um, right, to right. the ends of the earth uh, in all these different vocations right. uh, and how that's good and it's proper and it's right. And it's how it, it's how it should be done. And by it, I mean uh, the restoration of civilization right. and, and building out a Christian culture and, and upholding the principles of paideia um, and, and uh, find that first part of it. Yeah, and uh, just thinking about how we can enculturate and teach the whole child all of the things, um, right. everything in, in Christian life is is relevant to um, to Christianity. Everything is theological. Everything is connected to other things, and everything has opportunity to glorify Christ. And right. and it, it, it's a part of uh, our our cultural Christianity. Or a Christian culture. Yeah, right. yeah. So, and, th and that intersects with the, the way that I've customarily thought of uh, vocation in a kind of historical sense, which mm. is to say that one of the great uh, retrievals of the Protestant Reformation was the Christian doctrine of vocation. Right. Yeah. Where to caricature not very much before the Reformation, uh, in order to be sold out for Jesus, <laughs> you had to basically enter a clerical profession right. or become a, a monk or something. Yeah. Whereas the uh, one of the things that one of the earlier reformers was burned at the stake for was his view. I think it might have been Wycliffe. Um, I'm going to get this detail, details wrong. It was one of the earlier, um, uh, early, early, early Protestants. Yeah. Probably anachronistic use of the term. Um, uh, was his view that the blacksmith and the shoemaker and the carpenter are as much uh, honouring 
in the sight of God in their work yeah. as the clergy. Um, so what that generates uh, is um, a conviction that all the different things that we do can be done and should be done right. to honour Christ. Right. And at the level of grand principles, there's no kind of disagreement there. There's no square inch, Piper, over right. Jesus doesn't say mine. Um, all of life is under the Lordship of Christ. All these are kind of general principles. And so one of the challenges you've then got as an educator is to think, all right, um, how do we actually instantiate that Lordship of Christ yeah. in the nitty gritty of individual subjects? How does that translate into concrete vocations later in life? Mm -hmm. And for what it's worth, I think instantiating it in different subjects is probably harder. So I'm going to let you do that. Yeah. So why don't you, sure. <laughs> why don't you talk about some of the opportunities and challenges yeah. of practically speaking, um, teaching subject X Christianly. Mm -hmm. And then I want to talk about jobs after that. You yeah. I, I'm going to get there, but it, yeah. I'd be remiss if we left the Reformation. We can talk just briefly about the, the French Huguenots mm -hmm. in you can say it however you want. <laughs> you can do it. Yeah, uh, that's wonderful. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, talking yeah, talking about, um, you know, the blacksmith and all these different things. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's, I don't want to blaze past that. It's such an important part that I think oftentimes we take for granted this, mm -hmm. this concept that you can be a blacksmith or a mechanic uh, or you can be a janitor or something like that for the glory of God. I think that's, I think that's, that's not something that people always thought. Right. And, it, cer and it, it certainly is something that actually got the, the Huguenots in trouble. So the 16th century French Calvinists, mm -hmm. um, in large part, um, this, this, this whole society that was um, about reforming the church, you know, and, and the, um, picking up, um, you know, because of uh, John Calvin's work and, and really understood the doctrine of vocation right. and, and really kind of just started to branch out and, and became known for their hard work and 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 people were seeking them out to 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 do these things. And I think I mean to do all these different things, architecture and building and and, and woodcraft and all these different things, you know, they were sought out because of their high quality of work. And and that's kind of what I think is a is an inspiration to me, is thinking right. about they're known because of their good work. Right. Right. And I think there's a direct correlation um, between that and, and how Christ talked about how we are to um, to be about serving and loving the community is yes. is by being, you know, our, our work being known. Um, and that's kind of you want to. Yeah, no, go ahead and jump in because uh, it, it resonates very sharply with a uh, conversation I had just last week with a Christian businessman. Mm. Um, he started a Christian company. Well, no. Pardon me. He started a company, and he's a Christian, so he'd, he'd, yeah. he'd you know, the company code of conduct was uh, a Christian code of conduct, but with the Bible verses stripped out. Um, <laughs> he wasn't trying to evangelize sure. in the workplace in that kind of explicit way. He was just trying to do great Christian work, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of the people he hired, though not all of them, were Christians. Now, what was really interesting is some of the people who he hired were really struck by the the actual Christian culture in the workplace, which didn't involve uh, tracts at coffee yeah. time. It right. wasn't that kind of caricatured evangelism right. as uh, toe curlingly uh, inappropriate, sure. um, leaving Christian stickers on your colleagues' monitor. <laughs> you know, right, sure. The first duty of a Christian in the workplace is to do his job excellent, right? And for the relationships that he has to be marked by Christian love and Christian uh, diligence and Christian mm -hmm. sacrifice, sure. not like any other relationship, just with Bible verses sprinkled on. So he's got this company. It was actually then bought by uh, a bunch of other people who were not Christians, who are now running the company, but with many of the same employees. And they came back and were talking to him and, and, and remarked, on, what is it you've done here? Yeah. I've never been in a company like this sure. before. Where the culture is yeah. is this is oriented in this way. So, just on the on the subject of vocation, um, there is a distinctively Christian way of being uh, every calling, and right at the top of the list, being a Christian uh, accountant, Christian uh, 
supermarket checkout system, a yeah. Christian plumber, uh, a Christian IT developer, is just to do your job excellently right. with conscientiousness and diligence and, and cheerfulness yeah. and attention to detail and not just knocking out 400 lines of uh, poor quality computer code, but writing 20 lines of outstanding code right. to do the same job and are far more efficient. That's what a Christian would do. Right. So now you let's track that back into Christian education. Yeah. I, I think this is harder to think specifically about what does Christ being Lord of my math class mean? Right. And then the, the scales fall from your eyes and you realize, well, it just means doing math really well. <laughs> First. Yeah. 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 It, um, Christians ought to be better at calculus. Right. Because they have been spending, you know, they've got the same number of hours in the day as the non-Christian kids down the, the road at the right. next door school, but they're absolutely focused on doing their math homework. Yeah. So, so on average, the standards are higher. I mean, do you want to speak to that? In your, yeah. is, is that something which you make? How how do you try and communicate that in your school context? Yeah, there's a lot there for sure. You know, what what springs to mind first is. Oftentimes I have these conversations, does classical Christian education work? Mm -hmm. You know, people want to see the statistics. I think by and large, our culture is very utilitarian yeah, and yeah. that uh, does it work. But I think it's a valuable question. And I think there are statistics, the Good Soil Report and all these different uh, things that, you know, I mean, classical, the resurgence of classical has been around for about 45 years mm -hmm. uh, since uh, Logos in Moscow. And, um, and I think there are great statistics, but it's not the primary... Um, focal point being an academic high rigor or something like that. It's it's what you said is excellence, and also in you know like you asked earlier in 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 how we approach the concept of subjects, right? So the whole idea of subjects um, is probably a little too uh, compartmentalized right. okay. from a classical Christian perspective, and and that's not that's not new. You know, right, this sure. is this is very very old in that. It's it's all um, it's all being taught or hopefully being taught from from the idea that in Christ all things are held together right. and, and so there's there's leakage between right. these domains yeah right and that you know we were talking about earlier that everything is about everything the yeah. question is can we see it yes right yes. so so could I connect physics with like we had previously mentioned in the last episode milking goats right I probably can't but probably you could. Well, find a way. I mean, I've probably milked a goat, but I don't know physics. You right. know physics. Well, it's interesting. We found ourselves talking about physics in theology classes here. Yeah. So we're teaching theology of, uh, for young people at All Saints and also the Oaks yeah. tutorials. We've talked about physics in theology classes. And what I've also noticed is, um, especially when you're teaching the older students, mm. is that you're absolutely depending on knowledge of, let's say, uh, English writing mm -hmm. and communication skills, speech skills, historical understanding. Um, when you're talking to students um, from you know ninth, tenth grade upwards, mm -hmm. and so I think you can see those practical ways in which you get the leakage across subject barriers, yeah. and you certainly do. I mean, I, as a former scientist, okay, you, you cannot really learn um, physics. At anything beyond a very hand wavy um, <laughs> coffee table book level, right. without doing some fairly serious mathematics. Right. Um, and so you have clearly the interpenetration of math mm -hmm. and and physics. And when you get to a university setting, engineering um, and other STEM subjects, it's a lot of it is applied maths. When I was at um, a university as a as a undergraduate and then as a graduate student. The best mathematicians, or at least the ones I could understand best, were engineers because they had to do this super hardcore maths yeah. to, to, to for sure. everything from structural analysis to electronic circuits and and everything else. So you get this interpenetration of all the different subjects. Um, now, uh, one of the distinctive challenges, I I think, is to be be as a Christian educator. Yeah. is to be willing to be ready for the penetration of distinctive Christian claims mm -hmm. into those subjects. Right. 
but without kind of forcing them in in a yeah. caricatured way. So, so Christian mathematics is not five loaves plus two small fish right. equals seven items of food. That's right. that's just do you times tables. And it's not do you times tables and forget about Jesus. Right. You do your times tables as an act of honouring Jesus, because in his universe, five times five is twenty-five. Mm -hmm. So learn that, please. You know, and right. and that is Christian mathematics. Yeah. And I guess this gets back to what I was saying before. It seems to me that the first duty of um, maybe that's not quite the right way of putting it. Uh, a primary, a primary duty uh, of Christians in every domain is to do what they're doing excellently. Yeah. Now, when I said that, I felt like you were wanting to push back ever so slightly against the rigor that might be implicit in that, and you wanted to talk about excellence instead. Is, am I getting that distinction right? Tell me. So, I, I've heard some educators, some Christian classical educators, push back against the idea of rigor. Mm -hmm. We're not aiming for rigor as such, but what we are wanting to pursue is a good quality sure, education, a, sure. uh, an excellent education. So is there something in the, the rigor thing that, yeah. is it like an exam prep focus that you're wanting well, to push back against or something else? Maybe uh, without thinking, my pushback is on the focus. Right. So, um, I mean, we do want rigor. I mean, something we okay. say all the time, we want joyful rigor. Okay. Um, I mean, we get to do these things. We don't have to. We get to, we get to learn these hard things. And, and, but I, I like the idea of the pursuit of excellence, and then all these things will be added to you. Yeah, okay. uh, kind of uh, thinking about it from the, you know, taking that, the principle from that, that verse and thinking about how, uh, you know, we're, we're going after these things, and then these things will be added to us. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, may, yeah, that would be my primary pushback is, if someone were to say, are you a rigorous school? Yeah. I would probably preface it by saying, well, we're a school who strives after excellence. Right, yeah, that's what you're saying. Um, and maybe there's there's nothing there, uh, yeah. but just as a matter of priority. And, you know, words have meaning and, and ideas have consequences. And, and you know, at any given point, we should probably define our terms well, certainly. Yeah, I mean, what is excellence, right? Yeah. I mean, so I think my, uh, my experience with people who wanted to distance themselves slightly from the rigor idea yeah. has been because other schools that aren't particularly Christian, um, but are nonetheless trying to produce some kind of high quality academic output, right. describe themselves as rigorous. And really what they mean is their exam prep engines. Right. And we don't want our education <laughs> to be reduced to that. Right. Yeah. So I think if, if we can think about young people striving to do the very best job they can yeah. of learning all the different subjects that they're learning and recognizing the point you made, the interpenetration of those domains. Yeah. Then that is that is Christian. Now here's the the challenging thing. I think sometimes when people say we want to have Christian education, what they're really wanting is the mention of Bible verses right. frequently. And they get nervous when those Bible verses are not mentioned. Yeah. In, and and yeah. I, I wanna <laughs> I, I wanna I wanna craft a hypothesis and then you tell me what you think. Because it seems to me, let, let's take lots, a, a number of different subjects, um, ones that I happen to know more about than, than some other subjects. Uh, the hard sciences, uh, chemistry and physics, let's take mathematics as well. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, the way that a Christian does maths and the way that a, a highly competent person who's not a Christian does maths might look very similar. Their motives will be different, their thoughts, sure. right? But the actual you know, results of the equations mm -hmm. are going to be similar. Now that's different in religious studies, different in history, um, it's different in the social sciences. But in the hard sciences, um, the, the outcome of your study of physics and chemistry and maths is going to look nearly identical. Yeah. Now, I want to suggest, far from being something that should worry us, that is actually a sign of the tremendous blessing that we are heirs of historically, because those subjects are themselves the fruit of Christian yeah. exploration of the world. Right. So in other words, it's not that, oh, Christian science, Christian scientists haven't got anything distinctive to say, and Christian mathematicians have got haven't got anything distinctive to say. Right. It's the other way around. It's that science itself and the scientific revolution 
as it was originally thought of, right. was a profoundly yeah. Christian em enterprise. Right. And people who don't acknowledge Christ now still find themselves doing right. sure. a great deal of the same sort of right. stuff. Same with mathematics. I mean, we have right. people actually speaking the language that God had revealed, you know, mm -hmm. creation in to some right. degree. Or, or at least speaking the language in and through which we can describe the interaction between yeah. different things. Yeah, no, I like that. And I think math is a is one of those complicated things. I've thought I've thought a little bit about this from a from a philosophical perspective. And you know, I think one of the most difficult things for teachers, uh, or at least in my experience, in my experience teaching math, is how how can you teach math from a Christian worldview? What does that look like? And and I've discovered, at least in myself, perhaps in others, that I think to some degree, for better or for worse, I'm not sure if this was my education being uh, in, in the government school, or at some point I've collected this idea or this notion that mathematics as a concept, as a whole, exists like as this universal principle that exists alongside the nature of God. Like at some point I've made mathematics a universal thing, like some sort of platonic form that exists alongside the character of God. And, and just to interject, you're, you've made it that, and now you think that was a good idea or a bad idea? A terrible idea. Right, good. Just make sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so, so and, and I think I think we do this. I think we right. elevate things. Right. And then, and then when you see that mathematics and, and the whole lot of... So, so to, but follow that thought. So what maths is, then, is what a a particular type of numerical and logical description of the coherence that God has right. given to the right. fabric of creative yeah. reality. So, right. I mean, simply put, it's an, it's a characteristic of God's, um, of God's uh, revelation to right. man. So, so, so the, the logical necessities of mathematics, like 2 plus 2 equals 4, uh, are in some way uh, a creaturely uh, echo of the necessities inherent within God right. himself. Right. Right. Instead of they, they don't necessarily exist alongside of right. God. They certainly don't yeah. exist. So all, all logic and all mathematics is um like like all things holds together right. in Christ. Yeah. It doesn't exist alongside him as an independent right. principle. Right. And that's such an that's such an important concept. And it might seem like, oh that's a random thing that Josh invented in his mind. Mm -hmm. But I think it's an unexamined thing that happens sometimes. It's like we exist. Uh, this is why I like presuppositional apologetics. Right, right? This is exactly what it is. Right. So because we exist with all of these axioms in our head, mm -hmm. and so like mathematics is uh, is axiomatic. Right. But why? And where in relation to God? And what's the priority? I mean, the, we there's something to the fact that we can't even conceive of two plus two not equaling four. You like, cannot. Right. So it's like even because like, you know, um, previous episode, if you were to see a cow and, a, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mean, you see a male female cow. Right, yeah, male female cow. Well, yeah. But, um, did I lose that? I think you you know, if you see <laughs> those two things, you don't need language to understand that there is something there is a two-ness, right? And I'm not trying to be too platonic here, but there is a two-ness yeah, yeah. that finds its relation to uh, the nature and character right. of God. And, and, and the most basic concepts in logic and philosophy, like the one, singularity and plurality and sameness and difference, mm -hmm. um, are in, in the end, they are created concepts because they are first creatorly concepts. They, right. they, they are characteristics of God himself. God is, right. is singular and plural. Sure. God is triune, three and one, and therefore um, the created order has both sameness mm -hmm. and difference in it. Right. Two guys, but we're different. Right. Um, two human beings, but they're different. Um, yeah. So, okay, so if you just track that back one second, because otherwise we're going to get lost in the detail. What that means is for the teaching of some of these subjects, really what we're you start with this meta-theological right. framework where you say, welcome to your math class. We are going to be exploring the relationship between abstract entities, mm -hmm. numbers, um, which relationships are created analogs, mm -hmm. uh, mirror images of the integrity and 
beauty yeah. and coherence of God's right being. Yeah, and, and some of the beauty yeah. of mathematics. Right, and that's I think is, a key component to right. understanding these subjects, especially mathematics. Right, is like the coalescence in the beauty of it. Right, okay. is is I think one of the the biggest factors in under in, in teaching anything from a Christian worldview or from the nature of, of God's revelation and how it right. applies is is like that cohere that that intersects that is beautiful because God has created it in such a way. Right, right, right. Now, and what this does then is it gives you a platform to then take a step towards the next slightly less abstract field. So let's now think about um, experimental sciences. Mm -hmm. Because we could talk about theoretical physics and so on, but let's think about experiment. Let's not. <laughs> uh, but think about experimental sciences. There is a kind of spectacular beauty yeah. to the the way in which uh, molecules and atoms interact. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, I did chemistry, you do reasonably high level physics to a higher level, and, and there is just something awe-inspiring mm -hmm. about that. And it's not necessarily just the awe-inspiringness of something which is a beautiful picture, right. like the Crab Nebula, or um, an atomically resolved scanning tunneling microscope right. image. One of my, one of my friends, Morialis. Yeah, right. Some some beautiful graphical representation mm -hmm. can be can be attractive aesthetically, but just the profoundly wonderful symmetry mm -hmm. or intricate function of biochemical or biological structures. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you, we can see the wondrous um, genius. Yeah, I was going to say creativity. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the infinite genius of the creator in these things. And so this is one of the reasons why it's important to push back against... So, let me just pause a second. As you go from the more abstract, like mathematics, you go through physics and chemistry and you get towards biological structures, you start to run into secular counterclaims as to the origins of that beauty. Right, materialism. Right, materialism, Darwinian evolution. Yeah. Um, and I think it starts to become more obvious to people and more important for educators to then push back against those anti-Christian counterclaims. Right. So in, this is why people have a fairly good idea, I think, how to teach biology Christianly. Right. As opposed to secularly, because the mechanisms yeah, for the... Sure. Um, coming into being of these biological organisms right. are so different, even though the description of their functioning might be very much the same. So people feel on safe ground teaching yeah. biology Christian because right. we know what we've got to say. Sure. You know, Darwin is wrong in his account of the origin of biological diversity. Yeah. Um, and I guess what I'm wanting to say is, yes, amen to that. Um, and uh, don't lose heart when you can't quite see so obviously the distinctively Christian character of, um, let's say, the more abstract sciences, right. and then mathematics behind it all. Mm -hmm. Because what's actually happening is that in those areas, the, the Christian influence is more, I almost want to say subversive, but it's almost meta-scientific mm -hmm. and hasn't been so corrupted by secular alternatives. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's astute for sure. I mean, I think another way of thinking about it is um, at any given point in any given generation, we get to stand on the backs of the blessings of those who have gone before us. And I think right. that's happening uh, in, in mathematics, or at least it has been until probably the last few years in this post-post um, like truth era where somehow mathematics no longer is ob uh, objective and but I think I think you know I mean we are seeing that come under attack in this this perfect order mm -hmm. um, yeah. and you know this this non chaotic thing existing yeah. I think is yeah. is probably making some people upset and to go back to your original question I think drawing attention to with these students to these subjects and seeing how all of them interplay and interconnect um, is is a, is a top priority for me, uh, certainly as an right. educator and, and for the school as well. Okay. So let's just um, draw some threads together. We've been talking for about half an hour, and we haven't talked about any of the things that I said we were going to talk about. But let me just, we've, we've talked about, in one sense, what it is about different areas of work and vocation. Sure. And different subjects that makes them 
um, Christian, mm -hmm. and, we, and we've talked about even the abstract subjects like math and so on, and then situate, yeah, uh, sure. subjects like biology where it's more obvious what makes them Christian. Um, here's what I'm going to suggest. Let's just push that thought through a bit more and think, okay, what does Christian history look like? What does Christian, um, uh, what are Christian social sciences look like? And, and we'll just explore those a little bit more, and then we'll come back next time and we'll look at the stuff that, was, <laughs> that I thought we'd get to, because otherwise this podcast is going to go up for two hours. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll talk about um, some of the uh, uh, trade-offs between different mm -hmm. subjects. How, how do you decide practically what subject to do? So but let's, let me let me then keep us moving on this trajectory. If I, if I can say so, at the most fundamental level, when you're dealing with subjects like uh, logic. Uh, pure mathematics, um, we're, we're describing the conceptual structure of an ordered and beautiful universe created by a God whose being displays those characteristics for unity and plurality and identity and so on. Then you get to the slightly less abstract, it's the physical sciences, yeah. um, physics and chemistry, and you're seeing some of the aesthetic just beautiful things, but also the beautiful structures, the, right. the intricate functions. Then when you get to biological sciences especially, and perhaps cosmology as well, when you think about the origins of the universe, yeah. you're saying, okay, at this point, a Christian is going to make substantive claims about the origin of biological mm -hmm. life, about the origin of physical matter, which are starkly at variance with the standard cosmological model, 13.7 right. billion years, uh, with evolutionary biology we're, we're absolutely disagreeing yeah, with sure. the secular world on most things. So now let's think, I want to talk about history. Do you know anything about history? I don't know really anything about history. I, like I, I, well, I, I did history. It probably rounds down to zero, but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so, so let's, I'm joking, I know a little bit about history. So we're, both, we're flattering other people and putting ourselves down. We know a little bit about history. So, um, if you were sitting down with a, a new history tutor at your school and you're trying to encourage him and her, him or her, to um, uh, teach this subject in a way which is Christ-centered, mm -hmm. um, which acknowledges and honors biblical truth, yeah. what kinds of things do you think you'd want to say? It's a magnificent question. Uh, what springs to mind are a couple of things. I mean, like the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Right. Okay. Oddly typological hermeneutics. Huh. Go on. We definitely got to talk about that. Yeah. Sure. Push my button like that. So yeah. uh, and. You just moved off typological hermeneutics. Oh, you want to jump I in? I want to jump in. You don't so, want to just touch on that. You just. Okay. No. So, okay, so first thing, God's sovereignty. Let's just cash that out for me. So That one's easy. We'll get that one done and then yeah, do, do typology. Well, I mean, just, I think if, it, it bears repeating at all times. Right. That him, not us, mm -hmm. in everything. Salvation, like, um, but also just in every single day. Right. Yeah, right. And that, I mean, I, once again, maybe this is my proclivity, not everyone else's, but I just kind of naturally thought growing up that things just kind of happened. Right. Okay. You know, in some sort of like, maybe not, I would have said I wasn't evolutionary or materialistic, but I certainly would have philosophically um, agreed with that and that things are just happening. And I think maybe I, you know, I, without left to the freedom of our own will, somehow we become deists or somethingists. Mm -hmm. I think probably I was a bit de deistic. Right. And the things are just happening. You know, George Washington waltz in, he was really tall and he was selected be, to be the commander. Right. Like that just kind of happens. Okay, so, and a Christian doctrine of God's sovereignty is going to say, um, no, God has a purpose. There's teleology. Um, right. A direction, to everything. To everything. And right. So Spurgeon said, open the window, look at the dust flake, and even the trajectory of that thing is under the sovereign reign of God. Right. Now, and and <laughs> the, the point that we've got to keep getting clear is we can't always see the purpose at the micro granular level. Right. Uh, and and maybe we, we need to have a certain amount of wisdom in the claims that we make as the, the time scale expands somewhat. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we want to avoid 
a kind of self-serving imposition of teleological claims mm -hmm. that mean that we're privileging our own <laughs> place and time. Right. Because that's the kind of old, I can't remember the name of the fallacy, but the fallacy that sees yourself at some privileged terminal point in history. Sure. Like you're just work in progress, brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if we can say that the, um, the shape of history as a whole um, is being superintended by the living God. Right. So that minimally, we, we give thanks to him for the fact that you know, dental anesthetic. Yeah, I mean, right. And um, we're living in a world in which um, uh, most people aren't hungry for most of the time. Right. And uh, whatever you say about um, uh, the proclivity to human conflict, and we're seeing some ruinous yeah. and terrible conflict sure. worldwide right at the moment, but. Um, we are in we're in a place now where um, we're remarkably peaceful. Um, the Bible um, is translated into hundreds of languages. Right, right. You, and you don't want to you don't want to be like the people in Romans one who neither acknowledged God in their hearts, didn't give thanks to Him or right. honoured Him, um, uh, but uh, started to think of the, the things in creation as being determinative. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the idols of which Paul speaks. Yeah. We, we can honor God in his relation to history right. by a kind of a disposition of thankfulness. Mm -hmm. So God's sovereignty brings you there. Yeah, and so in you know, you you talking about that, like how is God superintending? I love that. I mean, like superintending at an imminent level. Yes, yes. Right. So what does he do? Like the doctrine of or you know, the teleology, I mean, like all of this, like what's happening? And so over the last couple of years. This idea of of like you know just a typological approach to 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 scripture and then even actually how that plays out into one's eschatology. I mean like uh, and so kind of just briefly thinking about uh, define typology in two okay. sentences. Well, okay, so sorry. <laughs> um, typology, uh, roughly speaking, is the observation that there are patterns in history as it's recorded in scripture between people at different times, events at different times, things at different times. Uh, most commonly people think of types of Christ. So mm -hmm. David is a bit like Jesus because X, Y, Z. Boaz is a bit like Jesus because right. he's a kinsman redeemer and he right. marries the bride. Um, uh, Joseph is a bit like Jesus because um, he goes down into the depths and right. he's lifted up. And, yeah. uh, and uh, probably the premier text is probably Gen Genesis 3.15. Right, yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's, a, there's going to be a serpent crusher who's going to come from right. right. So that's a typological exegesis of that text. Now, uh, I think typologically more properly understood uh, recognizes that it's not just all these things in the Old Testament relate to Jesus, right. but everything relates to everything. Right. So <laughs> the, the thing that's interesting about history then is uh, death and resurrection is the pattern for history. Mm -hmm. uh, empires rise and then empires fall. And then out of their ashes, greater things are born. Right. But this process takes many generations. Exactly. Then in an individual person's life, uh, you have growth, development, happy progress, and then sometimes a terrible catastrophe. And out of the ashes of that catastrophe, if it's shepherded rightly and, mm -hmm. and appropriated in a, in a Christ-like way, great things will come. And, and you can look back at something that was awful that happened to you and think, and I actually I learned something from that that was really valuable and, and, yeah. I, and not just learned, it shaped me as a person. Now, this way of reading history, I think is profoundly Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know enough about the, um, uh, the details of the whole of human history mm -hmm. to, to be able to comment in the intricacy with which a trained historian could, but sure. just think about something like, let's think something I know, a little bit about the British Empire. Okay, so what happened? Um, it was actually a tremendous force for good, right? Um, which brought um, technological uh, and governmental and legal and uh, practical benefits to many different places. But uh, it got too big for itself. It uh, it became and probably was from the beginning in many ways corrupt. Mm -hmm. uh, it it became this sort of behemoth which was unmanageable, and 
to, 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 to cast it in the typological terms, I'm, I'm thinking about it grew and it grew and then it came crashing down. Right. And uh, we're now in this kind of, over that long-term time scale, in a, in a period of British comparative insignificance. Mm -hmm. Now, how should you evaluate that? Um, how should you read that process Christianly? I think there's a way of doing it where you're recognizing that this is just what God does with nations. Nations rise, right? And sometimes empires, groups of nations rise, and then they fall. Mm -hmm. And um, you see it in scripture, you, you can see it in um, our own history. Um, it shouldn't surprise us then to see some of the cracks in the fabric of modern American civil society. Mm -hmm. um, we might reasonably expect the next couple of generations to be uh, times of perhaps reduced American global significance. You're right. But not, we, we careful. We, we, <laughs> we, we don't think that because we think that America is any different from any where else? Do you think that's just this is just how God deals with right. nations? But if we're thinking um, carefully, that would be the conclusion right. that it came to. Uh, but but at the same time, I think we, we'd be extremely careful about making predictions mm -hmm. because the world is such a complex and right. interconnected place. I'm not going to sit here and say what's going to happen next, um, and and certainly not to claim to be able to do so on theological grounds. Um, so when you think about the history of humanity in this way, I think it has the potential to inculcate a profound sense of humility. Right. right? Because yeah. you realize like, this astonishing experiment, <laughs> right, which has been going so well, <laughs> um, which has flaws, like every sure. everything right. has had flaws. And those flaws, um, uh, are they mar, but they don't entirely vitiate right. its strengths. Yeah. Um, but... You know, if, if let's just take a purely random example, if you spend two or three generations legalizing the butchering of the most vulnerable members of your society, don't expect God to right. turn a blind eye and say, well, don't worry about that. It, that it, and it's interesting to, to, to compare that reading of history with another reading of American history, which is becoming more popular at the moment, which is to say that the nation was founded on slavery. Right. Uh, the only appropriate response is to tear down any monument to that horrendous mm. past. Um, I think it's possible just about to see why people feel that way, but I don't think you can, I don't think that's the right way to read um, those and to respond to those events of the past. Yeah. However terrible some of the actions of some of the people were. Right. And it's just ironic, I think, that, that there is a, there is an eschatology implicit in that, yeah. which overlooks the the murder of tens of millions of American citizens in the womb, mm -hmm. and and regards it as determinative that these people who founded um, this nation, oh well, yeah, they owned slaves. Yeah, some of them did. So, so how, how do you? It, it, it's to, to read history Christianly, mm -hmm. you have to be, be in a position to correctly evaluate yeah. in moral terms the different things that different people have done over time. And it's characteristic of ungodly uh, movements and ungodly people and ungodly nations to misevaluate, yeah. to call evil good and good evil, or to call a terrible evil okay or even good yeah and other evil gets exaggerated out of all proportion so a, a, a christian is going to read that history differently yeah i mean i would have said the exact same things but thank you for saying all that for me i'm glad we agree on the typological <laughs> approach to that's what you asked me about wasn't it typology? yeah and that yeah. and see i mean I, I i fundamentally agree and that's why i think you know as history teachers we we do need to see that um and see God's sovereign hand. And I think once again, we, we get lost sometimes right. in thinking that this is the only time that ever existed right, when right, we're right. alive and, and seeing these, the rise and fall. But like a great theologian once said, it's like the S&P 500 only goes up. 
in the long term. You, you, I think I might have said that. You said that. But yeah, so, so but to kind of package all of that, yeah, yeah. right? So as we as educators, not just classical Christian educators, but as, as Christians educating, mm. if we can impart that to these students, yes, yes. right? And some glimpse of that, some some uh, semblance of reading history that way, but yeah, but yeah. reading all things that way and understanding right. all of yeah. life that way, right? And then and then you take that person and then you put them in a you know as a mechanic, you yeah, know, yeah. as turning wrenches, do, you know, like that that will dramatically change society. In fact, it, it it'll turn a society into something better than the Huguenots. I mean, like that. That kind of mentality got them in a lot of trouble. The Saint Bartholomew's Day massacre, and, and and down to the point where they were they were thrilled with the notion that there are only a couple of Huguenots left alive. We've stamped them all out, right? But so Tertullian, the blood of the martyrs, seat of the church, mm. um, and thinking those principles and taking that into the classroom, and we yeah. tell these kids this to some degree, especially you know the older kids. It's like, uh, I mean, you are about the mission of building the church. Being good churchmen, which yeah. we talked about, and, yeah. um, but building out the kingdom of God, right, and actively, and and, and perhaps even dying for it. Right. Um, and I think no matter what, as as Christians educating our kids, that's what we should try to inculcate. I mean, and that's going to look differently subject to subject. And I mean that yeah. that maybe that's an episode for another time. Yeah. But let me throw one more thing then in about history, um, and then we'll wrap this one up. Um, one of the things I started to realize, yeah. When we were began educating our kids, I started to realize I didn't have a big picture of the whole right. of human history. Yeah, it meant about and, a narrative. Yeah, right. And one of the best things that my wife Nicole did, in especially in the early years, but she then repeated it every three years, mm. was to teach a an overview of the whole of the history of civilization. Mm. And it took three years. It was like a three-year program. And I just thought that was profoundly helpful for a number of reasons. So the first thing is. It, it highlights that biblical history is not some kind of separate thing from history history. Hey, that's like, a real thing. I mean, I, growing up, yeah, my friends and I came across a timeline because I've never seen yeah. one before. And and I was like, I, this is maybe I shouldn't say this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because I was probably 17. I never, it never occurred to me that China, the Chinese empire was happening at the same time the other same things time. happened in the Bible. In the Bible right. And then you realize... I didn't. No one. No one told me. Right. This. But like it wasn't. It's not like happening in a different dimension. Right. Right. So, so. So the first obvious thing is that it's a. Um, there is one history of the world. Right. In which God's work, principally in that little corner of the Eastern Mediterranean, mm. is happening. So that's one one thought. The other thing is it, it gives you a, uh, a framework for the whole of history, so that certain ideological claims become completely implausible or conversely completely obvious. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if, if you have if yeah. you have an overview of the whole of human history, um, then and, and you've looked at more nations than just your own. Yeah. Um, you've looked at the East, you've looked at Eastern Europe, you've looked at the history of Russia and mm -hmm. China, uh, as well as history of America and history of Britain, and you've looked at Sub-Saharan Africa and you 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 know what then it Nobody is ever going to be able to persuade you that Marxism works. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody is ever going to be able to persuade you that you don't need to educate girls. Right. And yeah, nobody's ever going to be able to persuade you that um, really the only thing that matters is uh, academic education and you don't need to worry about working with your hands because right. you've learned about the scientific revolution. And the scientific revolution basically happened, and there the are two or three things, one of the critical things was. Christians imbibing a, a reformed doctrine of secular vocation. Yeah. So it was now possible for an intelligent gentleman to do things with his hands and learn things from them. Right. From, from it. From right. Him. So if, if you've got a big picture of history, a whole bunch of mistakes become impossible and a whole bunch of good things become intuitive. Right. And again, this is not particularly learning, oh, you've got to learn Christian history, so let's read the book of Daniel. Right. It's, no, let's just learn history very really right. well. And let's put the big picture together and see what God is doing among his people yeah. and elsewhere in the world and how he is moving 
the whole of civilization yeah. onward. And see, I, I think that's a great summary of kind of what we talked about. And and actually, you know, all of that to say that's why we as Christians don't simply slap a Bible verse right, on, on some on, on some because we don't believe that that God's work is um, so. We don't have such a low view of God's work that we just kind of proof text what we no, do no, in our right, lives, right, yeah. right? So because it's so comprehensive in our in our lives, um, are so uh, complex in the ways that we get to honor God. Um, you know, it applies. Why would you know? It applies to our life uh, the same way it applies to Scripture. It's like we don't just oversimplify and take God and force Him in this box yeah. and then proof text yeah. our lives. But what you do is you, it, it's like the way you do Christian theology. You don't start with Ephesians 2 and Romans 8 and right. uh, Romans uh, 4 and then try and build a doctrine of salvation out of that. Right. You're going to read Genesis to Revelation sure. 50 times right? and then ask yourself, how does this corpus of books yeah. present the big picture of what God is doing in the world? Yeah. And out of that emerges your doctrine of salvation, right. but also everything else as well. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. Now, listen, we, we have just talked for I don't know, 50 minutes was it? So, um, about um, all so the things a lot of stuff. that we've done. So, <laughs> so here's what we're going to do. Next time, are we going to ask about um, trade <laughs> <laughs> going to ask about trade-offs between different subject choices. Yeah. How do you decide what to teach your children? Right. Latin or Greek or neither or both? Or Hebrew. Or Hebrew. Huh? Um, then let's talk about, we'll talk about differences between men and women, boys yeah. and girls. And then let's talk about some of the gritty realities of preparing for college and making sure. this transition out of childhood yeah. into. We'll okay. call that doctrine of vocation, part two. Whatever you want to call it. A. Mr. Taylor. <laughs> All right, um, guys, glad you could join us. I hope you enjoyed this. We have been. We're going to be back uh, next yeah. week. We're going to be back in five minutes uh, to do <laughs> the next thing. I uh, hope to see you then. God bless. Bye for now. Thanks.